Hello and welcome to 2016, the first podcast of a new year that will be full of more interesting content as you join me as we go deeper in the exploration of creative ideas, open concepts related to that international metropolis of fun known as Berlin. We kick off 2016 today by diving headfirst into one of the most active, respected, and committed organizations on information activism. Happens to be based in Berlin. I'm talking about the Tactical Technology Collective, known lovingly as Tactical Tech. Now, for more than a decade, they've been at the forefront of training and developing or helping develop tools for not only journalists, but also rights activists all over the planet. How they do it. What does their work include? Today on the program, we have the voices that can help explain all of it. Still to come today on the program, a conversation with Alistair Alexander, the director of publishing and production, fresh from the Paris Climate Talks. We'll also hear from those who use the tools to spark change as part of Tactical Tech's Exposing the Invisible program. But before all of that, let's begin today by listening to the co-founders, Marek Tashinsky and Stephanie Henke, excerpts from their recent talk at the Elevate Festival in Graz entitled The Politics of Data in Quantified Society. Don't be fooled by the title. This is a conversation that goes beyond the activists, beyond the journalists. Today's program comes back in the end to you and me and the devices, the apps, the services that we use every day. From Wikimedia Deutschland, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro, and this is Source Code Berlin. Our question always is about what does it do to us that we really in love with these devices? What does it help us with? And what are we looking for? One of the things that we were interested in at Tactical Tech is when you really start going like inside the machine, behind you know, not just what you're reading and what you can see about the traffic, for example, in your computer, but also what's happening in a whole industry that we don't know anything about, these companies called data brokers. Uh, and the thesis is there that we're looking for uh, something or someone better, smarter, uh, richer, uh, more entertaining. But when you look at it closer, you zoom to the screen, you see that we're looking for better self. We're looking at how to find ourselves with more friends, with more books, with more music, and so on. You can go on and on and add to your collections of things. But what the data brokers are doing that we interviewed is doing something called geoconquesting, which is one step further. So that means in tracking you when you're moving around, for example, a city, they can also see when you're at a competitor's store or at a competitor's um, venue. So we've seen some examples of that. And yesterday, I have to say that I, it sounds kind of far-fetched, but yesterday, for the first time, I got geoconquested. I was at Frankfurt Airport, and I got pushed um, a message by EasyJet, who I have an app with, who asked me whether I'd like to book a flight. So that was kind of a strange moment, but I think for, for a second you think about it and you start to think, I wasn't traveling with EasyJet yesterday. Is it not just that they know that I'm here in an airport, which is why they're passing me this ad, but also they know I'm not flying with EasyJet? And that's when you start to get kind of paranoid. When you, you probably know this saying, you know, if you're not paying, you're the product when you're using these kinds of free services. And the question here is, how do you even begin to think of value in this kind of exchange when there's no money changing hand? It's not, we're not working for these people, or are we? And then the question as well is, you know, what's going on there in terms terms of how we even evaluate the quality of that data or, or the quantity of it or where it's gone or what it means to us because we can't even see it and we don't even know where it is. 
You may have seen recently, though, in the newspapers, quite a few articles about this question. I think it's something in the media right now, which is this question of what does it mean to live in a quantified society? What does it mean to live in a society that, that counts data is a very important thing. And you may have seen some of the debates around that. One example is um, a life insurance company who now gives discounts to people for wearing something called a Fitbit, which is a kind of bracelet that you wear that monitors your physical activity. And for, for wearing a physical activity for the year, you get a discount, something that I calculated to be around 50 euros a year. So the question is, are we willing to give, is that worth it for us? You know, are we willing to give away data about our physical activities and very personal data about our lifestyles on the basis of that kind of discount? Is that worth it? And are we okay with that? How can we begin to push back against this? And how can we begin to critique this in a way that doesn't just kind of roll over and use this argument of, well, I understand in general, but I have nothing to hide, so I'm fine with it. So how do we kind of push that discussion further? In the context of the work we do, what we're also interested in is this kind of, we don't take these companies seriously because they don't have a serious image, they're not wearing suits, you know, they don't have a serious rhetoric and so on. But at the same time, when you look at some of the questions involved, they, they can be quite serious. So recently, Facebook was discovered in the UK that they paid £4,300, which is about €5,000 in tax last year. Meanwhile, they paid £35 million to their um, employees for bonuses. At the same time, they made £13 billion um, dollars in profit. Um, but these are companies who are taking a certain position. They're basically going around government or sort of they're thinking of themselves as uber government, if you like, that they don't really need this position. There's this idea that the companies will be brought into to check by the government. And we've seen that that's probably not going to happen for reasons we can maybe discuss later. This is a picture of Facebook um, saving the world by themselves. Sorry, this is Google, excuse me. Google facing the world, uh, changing the world by themselves. The talk now in Silicon Valley is all about the next billion. So how can we get into the market of the next billion, meaning what other people call the global, global south or the developing world? And this is them delivering internet through balloons. Lots of strange projects are coming out now of Silicon Valley that are really worth looking at. Here's one by, funded by um, Bill Gates, by the Gates Foundation, which is um, going to be trialed at the end of this year, which is a chip the size of a Scrabble tile if you know that game, <laughs> it's a very small chip anyway. Um, and it goes in and under a woman's skin and it controls her fertility remotely for 16 years. And they're now trialing this for great, for great potential in the developing world. Unfortunately, it's true, this is not a hoax. Uh, this is a true one, you can look it up, it's uh, made by a company in Boston. Um, what they're also investing in is this, um, 13 billion in the question of uh, what they call radical life extension, which is also been called curing death, trying to live beyond the year 120, um, 120 years old. Um, and when you look at the amount of money they're investing in this and some of the questions that were brought up earlier around things like climate change, some of the really essential problems we have in life, and this is the question of extending life, not, not an unimportant quest, but they're putting an enormous amount of money into these kinds of things. Lastly, I took a trip to Silicon Valley earlier this year. Um, this is what I found at the NASA Research Center in Silicon Valley. We were walking around and I saw this big silver structure and I just asked the guide, like, what is that building? And they said, oh, that's Google's moon rocket. So we, I said, sorry, what do you mean Google's moon rocket? And they said, um, yeah, that's the moon express and that's where Google's building its moon rocket. So I said, Google's going to the moon, why is that? And they said, to mine the moon, of course.
As you can already tell, since its founding in 2003, Tactical Tech has developed an array of products and activities to help enhance the use of information for activism. Some better known examples include Security in a Box, a kit with tools and tactics for your digital security, Tactical Studios, a creative agency for advocacy, and currently in its second edition, their 2014 book, Visualizing Information for Advocacy, which features 60 examples of visual campaigns from around the world, looking at what made them effective and offering advice on how to combine information, design, technology, and networks. In 2013, Tactical Tech began producing a film series entitled Exposing the Invisible, each episode focusing on forms of investigation and the tools and tactics explained by the very people who led those campaigns. I'm an investigative reporter from Bucharest, Romania. I teach uh, follow-the-money techniques. Um, I teach people, I, sometimes journalists, sometimes activists, sometimes even law enforcement. I teach them... Um, how cross-border organized crime operates and how you can track them down. So this is a public service that you're doing. The society can take advantage of your investigative reporting if it's indeed thorough investigative reporting. The corruption and the organized crime in Romania is a good case study. So we chose Bucharest as a hub because we can have a regional perspective from here. Hi, I'm Mari Bastashevsky. I'm an artist, researcher, writer, investigator. Uh, my work blurs the line between these fields deliberately. I focus on issues of systemic failure, international conflict profiteering, and the information vacuum that surrounds these issues. For me, uh, uh, the end goal of um, finding an absolute answer and a truth is secondary to finding out how information about certain subjects, certain case study works. Organized crime, it's almost always just about the money. There's no ideology behind it. I mean, even if you look at uh, terrorist groups, if you really analyze the inner doings of terrorist groups, you'll see that in the end there are people that profit from that. They are fast, they move across borders, they don't care about language, religion, about social conflicts or whatever. Imagine an, an organized crime group that operates, you know, in the United States and in Iran. Do you see uh, law enforcement in the U.S. cooperating with law, law enforcement in Iran? I mean, I, I don't think so. But for organized crime, for criminals from Iran and the U.S., so easy to cooperate. When I started first to do research, I've been um, incredibly frustrated by not always getting the answers. And I felt like, okay, well, this is two months that I have just lost. And... Uh, I started to think about whether it has actually lost time or whether I'm mapping answers as to what is being secret and where are the doors that cannot be opened are and where are the curtains that cannot be lifted are. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that it would be also important for me to include in my final outcome, in my final work, uh, the failed questions, the questions to which I did not get answer to, knowing how to pull out queries and extract uh, things on the internet and be active in terms of searching for answers, mapping the initial work done by other researchers and uh, asking state authorities to in exchange and engage with you prior to going and speaking to people. For one, it's important in order for you to formalize the questions that you're going to ask. Our reporting covers a brand new area. 
we're not following the path of the law enforcement because we think that law enforcement is very limited. Uh, so our investigative uh, reporting is groundbreaking reporting. You have to go a little bit deeper and try to understand a little bit the minds of the people that you're reporting on. We're reporting on things that were never out there. My name is MC McGrath and I work on Transparency Toolkit. Transparency Toolkit is basically uh, tools for uh, free and open source software for open source intelligence and surveillance. In many ways, it's using some of the same techniques that the surveillance state uses, but it's using them against them and solely based on open data. The most imp important thing for this cross-border investigative network to function is to have collaboration um, between grassroots organizations. And then you also have people that have the regional vision. There's a need for this intelligence to flow freely across borders. It's about the reporter working with hackers and with activists. You always have access to expertise that is outside of your region, outside of your knowledge. ICWatch is a searchable collection of uh, currently just LinkedIn profiles of people involved in the intelligence community. And LinkedIn profiles, uh, because many people mention things about their work and their job history on uh, on LinkedIn, so they say, oh, I know how to use Microsoft Word and X Keyscore just in their skills on their LinkedIn profile. Or sometimes they also mention unknown code words and define them. So we've collected them all in one place and made software so that anyone can search through them to better understand surveillance programs or which companies help with which programs or the career paths of people in the intelligence industry. We want to understand both the details of the programs themselves as well as the people involved because institutions are made up of people and being able to understand why people get involved and if people leave the intelligence community, why they leave and what pushes them to do so is important for understanding how we can inform mass how we can reform mass surveillance. I get more freedom with not having to adhere to strictly journalistic line of interviewing people. So I can have a conversation with someone and I can wait for them to get back to me. A lot of the sources would demand uh, that we want to speak in person, which makes things very, very difficult. I've recently started working with the uh, Dodge designer uh, Last as a way of visualizing information, documents, and sources. And I found uh, this fluent synergy uh, that you reach by just discussing ideas where when you reach something perfect, you're not quite sure whose idea it was. It really just happened when you merged this flow and I meet a lot of people where ideas happen and while I reserve some of uh, some of my work some of the decision making behind my work to myself and the responsibility for for making that decision for myself alone um, I find that working with with different collective working with hackers working with designers working with researchers is actually um, Good. A lot of people do say that this information can't be made available for national security reasons or anyone who makes it available is aiding the enemy or things like that. Um, I don't really think that's the case. Given that what we found out just from the Southern Revelations alone, we've seen that there's been massive overreach and there's been misuse of the data that's being collected. And I think that that, that 
that has been far more problematic than any potential risk to of this information somehow giving away methods to the enemy that could then work around them. It's been so secret that not even the people who are supposed to have oversight of these programs have had full details about their operations, and that's a major problem too. So when people are not even going through the official channels for accountability properly, we need to take matters into our own hands and find other ways of making that data available um, so that people can understand what's going wrong or if something is going wrong. We operate with the same um, kind of quickness as the organized crime do. They are real people. They are real people that take advantage of a situation in this country and in that country. They are very, very smart people that are able to create uh, uh, cross-border networks. In a way, we're uh, replicating their models. We don't have their money, we don't have their tools, but we're, we're trying to, to replicate what they're doing. We're trying to create our cross-border networks. Our currency is information. For them, their currency is real currency, it's money. You're listening to Source Code Berlin. I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro, and today we're exploring the Berlin-based international non-governmental organization Tactical Tech. We've heard a bit from the founders on where we are as the individuals with our lives so closely tied to the devices and applications that can also be used against us. We've heard from an array of activists who are leading investigations using the kinds of tools TT helps to develop and promote. And now we turn to a friend of the program, the director of publishing and production at Tactical Tech, in a conversation that will eventually link back to one of the most recent global events that concerns seemingly everyone who shares this planet. But I'm talking about the Paris climate change talks. And before we get to that, let's first bring in Alistair Alexander, who can answer many of our questions about this organization, starting off with a more detailed explanation of what they do and how they do it. Tactical Tech is an organization that works with activists, campaigners, uh, human rights uh, workers around the world, um, helping them with uh, their digital security, looking at issues around surveillance and privacy, uh, and the wider impact of living in a data society. Uh, and we also explore how we can use information in the public domain to reveal new angles on different stories using information you can find on the web, on, on different databases or maps uh, to expose uh, information and new narratives that can be used in uh, human rights campaigning work. Um, geographically, we really focus on working directly with people outside Europe and North America, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America. Those are our main areas of interest and where most of our projects work. Um, in terms of the activists we work with, uh, they tend to be uh, people who are involved in campaigns related to human rights, to women's rights, to environmental rights, uh, generally to progressive causes um, and people who are committed to working with others um, uh, in a politically engaged way for uh, 
progressive outcomes. I'm curious kind of how your own work has evolved, uh, you know, where you started from, what idea you had uh, that brought you to tactical tech, and, and since then where, where your interests or your, your focus has moved or how it's evolved. Well, my, my background really um, is in two areas. One, one is I've worked uh, for, for many years on developing digital media and website media. Um, for organizations, uh, quite often non-profit organizations, um, working in areas such as health, global development, um, uh, learning disability, uh, also for media organizations as well, looking at ways you can take uh, information uh, and present it accessibly and as engagingly and as compellingly as possible online um, through sort of content, but video and also interactive uh, materials too, so so that's one area. But I've also been very involved in different different political um, campaigns for for a number of years through uh, things like the anti-war movement, um, through human rights organisations, through digital rights, uh, and through um, environmental direct action campaigns as well. So I've got a, a quite a a sort of uh, strong background in working with different activist groups and uh, being familiar with the challenges they face. And that's particularly relevant within digital security. I've always been interested in, in the web and digital media and the possibilities uh, of digital information and how it's shared online and disseminated online and what that means for us as a society. And obviously over the last few years, you become increasingly aware of the digital threats that we all face and the understanding that our, um, uh, the, the way in which we've become a, a, an online digital world has been something of a double-edged sword that for all of the uh, opportunities it brings in terms of sharing information quickly and easily as possible, which is incredibly invaluable for political campaigns, we're also subject to all sorts of uh, threats um, and uh, vulnerabilities as a result of that. So for me, tactical tech is uh, is a really um, it brings together all the things that I've been working on over many years um, in 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 one place with with a, a group of people with similar objectives and values. So from from my point of view, I've been here for a, a year and a half or so. It's it's an extremely exciting place to work, uh, working on extremely interesting topics. And I suppose what's particularly exciting here is that those topics are becoming increasingly a part of a wider discourse and are, are getting attention um, with a with a much a bigger mainstream audience. Tactical Tech as an organization, having been around now since 2003, is very much in a position of, you know, we told you so, world. Not that you spend any time saying we told you so. But <laughs> you know, the things that uh, the organization was, uh, all the topics that you just laid out that, that have been worked on for now well over 10 years, uh, once upon a time were considered, I think, fringe uh you know only yeah. the concern of a few and that's really changed it seems in the last especially the last five years i mean i think those those issues around digital security and, and threats are always there anyone with a technical knowledge could see the potential problems i think over the last say 10 years we've seen a shift towards social media towards 
storing our personal information online and we've seen the rise of huge powerful companies who are aggregating that information and what has evolved is their entire business models are around collecting that information analyzing it and selling it on so we've always raised those concerns but of course what changed everything i think was the the snowden revelations and suddenly uh things which were a matter of speculation became a matter of fact in terms of the extent to which um those companies uh and the information they're storing was was being um wholesale um downloaded analyzed tracked uh traced by um the uh, security agencies in 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 a number of different countries in particular the uk and the usa but obviously there are others involved as well and of course that made a lot of the issues that we're talking about completely unavoidable for people um suddenly all of these issues which were to some degree uh abstract uh and intangible became very real uh and quantifiable um and and that obviously changed the the terrain and the landscape in which we're operating dramatically what do you recommend when it comes to you know people who are just starting to get into this we have the internet that's so full of uh information some more reliable than others there you are for example with a website a, a very all-encompassing website with mm -hmm. several different areas how to bring people in as they're searching and, and where to begin when it comes to elements of protecting themselves in terms of privacy whether it's communication whether it's well data which is also part of communication how do you even how do you start on this road and, and what's important from our point of view is that we we give people information they feel they can do something with otherwise they'll just get uh discouraged and then just think there's nothing they can do but but of course there is things they can do so i i guess to start i would break it down into five basic areas really i would say the first thing you've got to think about is securing your own computers and devices as in mobile phones for example and the information that's on them um and that's that can be quite simple that can be um around keeping your uh, operating system up to date um changing the the settings um to ensure that they're configured towards privacy um, and then encrypting your files and information. You can do with most operating systems, you can encrypt your hard drive fairly easily. That will make a lot of difference. Otherwise, you can get some encryption software, free software, such as uh, one we would recommend is VeraCrypt, for example, um, which you can download and use that to create very safe encrypted hard drives of your um, drives on your computer um, for, for your sensitive files. Um, Another really key aspect of this, the second point would be to use strong, effective passwords. Um, that's really, really important. And the vast majority of us struggle all, all day, every day with, with so many different passwords. And we probably use a selection of vaguely different, but largely the same passwords over a number of different sites and sensitive accounts we really need to, to get a grip on passwords if you're going to be safe and secure online. And, and the, the really important thing to remember there is to use a passphrase as opposed to a password. If you use a, a, a collection of words together, um, the length is such that it's impossible to really crack. So using a, an actual passphrase is far more effective than, a, than a, a single word with lots of different characters in it. 
Um, but really the best way to do that is to use a password manager, um, which you download and gives you a completely uncrackable password and stores them for you and you don't have to remember passwords ever again. So the first part of this is about encrypting and making safe your computer and your files. The second is around passwords. Thirdly, you need to be able to access information safely because really on the internet, if you don't take care of how you are accessing information, pretty much anyone can see what you're doing. So an obvious and very simple tool there is, is one called Tor, um, which is free and downloadable. The Onion Router, it stands for. Um, and that allows you to uh, access the internet through its own network of anonymous relays um, which means that your traffic on the internet is pretty much untraceable. Um, and it also means um, that you can bypass censorship uh, if you're living somewhere where certain websites are blocked. Um, so Tor is an extremely effective tool to make sure that the information you're trying to find out is not something other people can find out from your computer. Uh, fourthly, it's about how you communicate with other people and that's when it gets complicated because of course you need to rely on other people being secure as well as yourself um, now the sort of main tool that uh, people have used to keep secure is uh, PGP encrypted email that's virtually uncrackable um, however it's quite difficult to use if you're unfamiliar with it but there are a number of tools out there for chat um, that allow encrypted chat uh, messaging between different people and voice calls. A really good tool which has uh, just come out on Android, has been out on iPhone for a little while, is called Signal. Um, that allows you to do encrypted chat uh, and, and voice calls um, on your phone and they're just releasing in beta at the moment a desktop version of that. So that's a really good tool to use for safe chat and there are a few, quite a few other tools out there as well. The fifth and final point I'd make is to really take care of the activities and the settings in your social media on Facebook, on Twitter or on other accounts you use to, to make sure you're familiar with the privacy settings because there's a huge amount of information there which you could be sharing unwittingly not only with other people on the network but with companies, with whoever's looking at it, maybe even governments. So uh, it's really important to, to be aware of the information you're sharing on social media and the implications that has for the other people you know on social media as well. So those are sort of five basic steps and if you cover all of those and look into them it's not incredibly complex. It's all about common sense but those five areas should give you a reasonably good understanding of the things you need to think about for digital security and to be reasonably safe online. And just for transparency, Alistair, many of the tools, all if not all of the tools you just described, it's not that tactical tech made them. Absolutely. We don't make tools. Um, we, um, we review tools. We recommend them to people. And the tools, are, all of the tools I've recommended um, are, are made by uh, our open source and are made by, uh, by organizations which are not-for-profit. Um, so we quite often work with those developers in terms of finding out what they're doing and they're finding out what we do um, and we have a good relationship with them but but it, it's not a commercial relationship and we just recommend tools which we think are good. 
um, and the tools that we use ourselves. I think one of the struggles has to be, as I look at the way people communicate uh, and, and what it seems that led them to use the tools they use, it's this struggle with um, convenience, it seems. You know, yes. y you could bring up how good the tools that you just laid out, take Signal, for example, is mm -hmm. for sending messages using your, your mobile device. But uh, uh, there's still a, a huge amount, I guess the majority at this point in the world, that continue to use, for example, the, the, the Facebook Messenger and say, well, this is what my people use. So sure. I gotta, I would like to have protected conversations, but I, I can't fight the need to be convenient. I mean, how do you, how to do battle against this or not battle, but, uh, you know, get past that? Yeah, convenience is critical, but I think there's a more important issue that you just raised there, which is it's where your friends and the people you work with are, which is critical. I mean, I mean, it's hugely difficult to persuade an individual to move away from the networks they use to connect with their friends or their, the people they work with to something where nobody is. That's not going to work. So it's not just about convenience. It's, it, it's actually more, more intractable than that. So... I think there are two things here. First, firstly, um, in in the online world that most of us inhabit, um, uh, we are inevitably going to be using a range of insecure channels of communication. So it's about being aware of those risks and knowing that, for example, if you are using Facebook, there are risks attached and there are risks attached to the people you are communicating with there. So that means you need to be careful about what you say and, and make clear that if you're talking to someone who's in a sensitive or targeted group or about something that could raise um, interest uh, from potentially hostile people, that you don't do that on Facebook, that you look for other channels to do that and you keep your communications there relatively uh, safe and uh, un, um, inconspicuous, shall we say. Um, and discreet. Um, and then it's really about, I mean, some of the tools I've, I've explained are actually really quite usable. Signal, for example, I think most people wouldn't have a problem downloading that on their phone. I, it's, it works just the same as most other apps you download on your phone. Um, and then it, but the, the, the key is getting other people to use it. And, and I think it's really important that if people are interested in this, and a huge number of people really are interested in this and don't know where to start, but one of the best things you can do is find two or three people you know who are also interested and try and sort of set up a little group to work on things together. Because if you've got two or three people who you can try things out with, it'll make it so much easier and make it so much more worthwhile. And once you have that, then you'll have more confidence about talking to it with other people. But really the key is, is getting people to a point where they feel comfortable telling other people, hey, I'm using this particular app because actually this is a lot more secure and this keeps us all safe. And actually it's not a problem to use. So why don't you use it too? That, that's the way in which these things get regularly adopted.
And and how do you approach since education has to be a you know me, I almost said media education, but it's really sort of what is it a digital education? Uh, it, it's still something I think is very young in this world or at least very slow to develop uh, in terms of getting into schools when we learn how to write and how to use a lot of say the computer is there some way where tactical tech gets involved in in that education be it at an adult level or at a, at a kid's level well we, we we've started and a huge part of what we do is around trainings um and bringing people together giving them skills and the tools they need for digital security, among other things. So that's a very, very important part of what we do. It's, it's a big part of who we are, I think. Um, and and we'll, we'll continue to do that. We, we continue to do trainings uh, around the world. We do big interventions where we bring lots of people together, um, more in a kind of a skill-share environment where we bring groups of people with common interests. We've done that with a, a group we, um, which we, we, we had an event last year called the Gender Tech Institute where we brought um, over 50 women together from around the world, all of whom were involved in women's rights projects and brought them together um, to, 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 sh to share information and knowledge about how to use digital security, but to look at the wider issues around women and technology and how you get women to, to take advantage of technology and use it for, for their own objectives. So, so that's a very big part of what we do. The, the, the schools and educating young people is a really interesting point and absolutely there's not nearly enough done and this would be really, you know, a basic part of every kid growing up because, you know, most, most children are starting to use social media at what, what 11, 12 years yeah, old? Younger. Um, and they really need to know this stuff. I mean, really this should be some part of the basic skills of life that you, you need to have uh, with you as soon as you start going online. Um, that's actually an area where we're looking at at the moment. It hasn't been an area we have been focused on, but it's something we're certainly looking at as an area to develop in the future, and one which is hugely important. Let's talk about the, the place of tactical tech, just in case it's not obvious to people, uh, the kinds of activities uh, that you find yourself doing and, and uh, when, when you go to Paris, uh, talk about it. I mean, what, what was your first visit like uh, at the start of these talks? Well, I should be clear that I, I kind of went in a personal capacity, not, not with tactical tech. Very good. Um, although I met a lot of people we work with. Um, so, uh, but I have been working with various environmental groups who are out there. I mean, it's a big, big mobilization. There are a lot of groups there. There are, for example, quite a lot of indigenous Americans who've come over for that, um, and various other local groups as well. Um, and it is striking as well when we look at, um, what we do with our partners who work on direct support of human rights defenders, the proportion of which, um, they work with that are involved in environmental campaigns. It's very clear that environment, people working on environmental campaigns are particularly targeted for digital and physical threats, possibly more than any other um, uh, kind of activity. So, so it's an important area for us. Um, so, I mean, what's important here um, from a point of view of tactical tech is to work with these kind of organizations and, and, and networks and groups and individuals to try and build up their sort of uh, their resilience to digital attacks and digital threats, and we're seeing that in particular in Paris, where there's a state of emergency now, of course, after the attacks uh, a few weeks ago. 
um, and quite draconian laws which have been brought in this year by the French government where they are looking to um, increase their surveillance powers and collect more and more information online. They've recently put forward plans to ban Tor, which is the uh, tool I was talking about earlier. Um, and we're seeing a number of arrests in Paris uh, of convergence centers, spaces where people are sleeping, where there have been big raids, their computers stolen. Um, we've seen people under house arrests. I think what's striking in France right now is that when we look at the issue around digital threats, uh, it goes hand in hand with physical threats at the same time. And when we look at security and protection from uh, authorities, um, the two are inexorably linked, that when you have uh, governments or state agencies aggressively uh, monitoring and uh, harassing a particular group or individuals online, they're probably doing it offline too and vice versa. I mean, it's, it's of course, I think, disappointing for, for many people out there that, you know, here in, at the start of this program, we present Tactical Tech as uh, an organization that's going to help uh, in terms of privacy, in terms of data protection, um, with the idea that it's going to help people that, that are truly uh, trying to affect change for the better, for a better world, and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, we still have this uh, percentage of people out there in the world, many of them seem to be in government, uh, who say, hey, that's not what those people out there on the streets of Paris are doing. They're not working for a better world. They're a threat. They're, mm -hmm. they're going to harm society. So let's, let's round them up and give us the power uh, to do that, which includes you know, uh, following communication, uh, getting a hold of information. Um, it, it, just, it, it makes me curious almost, like, are there any governments in this world that are realizing the value in a in a positive sense for these tools, uh, not targeting, you know, the, the, the journalist or the activist. I, I'm, I'm giving you almost a, a harder question because it maybe has no answer, but I'm wondering if you've seen signs of, of sort of enlightened, you know, it, it could have been a Paris where um, the authorities didn't do this. But of course, in the, in the context of these terrorist attacks, it's not all that surprising the way the world has worked, that they... They don't take that approach. They take the approach of, you know, we're going to get all of you because you're also the enemy. Yeah. Um, there are governments that claim to be enlightened, I suppose. I mean, the German government is one which likes to present itself as protecting freedom of speech and privacy. Um, however, I think there are, there's an ongoing inquiry in the German parliament which reveals at best uh, an ambiguity there and that the... German intelligence uh, agencies are as involved in surveillance as, as other governments. Uh, you have Iceland, which has brought in laws around privacy and protection uh, online, um, which is encouraging. However, I think the overwhelming picture around the world is of governments that see the online space as a potential threat to uh, their own interests, but also as an enormous opportunity to gather information on their adversaries and their potential adversaries. And for most governments, regrettably, but I think it's the nature of government, that is an opportunity too good to miss. So I think the trend around the world uh, is um, a series of 
um, legislative processes uh, which look remarkably similar. We've had laws in France and in, say, Brazil this year. We've been working with groups in both of those countries um, looking for the same kinds of measures to collect and analyse data. And of course, in the UK at the moment, they're pushing through another surveillance bill in effect to post facto legalise the kind of collection of data they've been doing for many years. Um, it, it is, it seems an inherent part of government they should want to do that. And there's also quite a lot of coercive pressure from major powers um, uh, in intelligence, the US and UK, for, for, for other governments to, to conform to the same kind of processes and practices that they do. So unfortunately, uh, when it comes to legislation and government activity, it's kind of one-way traffic at the moment. Yeah, and, and what could be, or in an ideal world, perhaps just a matter of education uh, in terms of getting people more informed about these tools, there's another battle that is clearly going on, and that is the narrative of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what are these tools, who are they for, and... For and sure what they do in this world. For people that want to know more, of course, uh, Tactical Tech is the organization, and I'll link uh, to it and people can see. Well, I would just point to some of our websites. It's not all on our main website. We have a website called Security in a Box, which has information on tools and tactics for digital security. And uh, another website, me and my shadow, .org, and that's myshadow.org. Um, and that covers... Uh, some information on digital security in a really accessible way, but also explains uh, about privacy uh, and and data and how that information is being used not by uh, just by uh, companies but also by governments as well. It explains how you can control the data around you, which is what we call the digital shadow. We publish books. We have um, yeah. our book Security in a Box, which is in several languages: um, French, Spanish. Russian, Arabic, um, uh, and uh, we have a number of other different ranges of materials which we, which we send out to people as well. Alistair Alexander is the Director of Publishing and Production for the Tactical Technology Collective in Berlin. And that does it for today's program. Remember that if anything discussed today seemed interesting to you, there is a list of relevant links on our website, sourcecode.berlin. You can also follow the show via Facebook or Twitter at SRC Code Berlin. Music today was by Pictures of Floating Wind, Silence is Sexy, REW, Benjamin Banger, all published under a CC license and available on the Free Music Archive. We also heard audio excerpts from the Exposing the Invisible film series and the Elevate Festival. Source Code Berlin is a Wikimedia Deutschland podcast published under a CC BYSA 4.0 license and edited by me. Until next time, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. Thanks for listening, and one more time, Happy New Year. We are, we are, we are.